Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Let us remember there in God's holy presence, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, tonight I want to start off by finishing off a little bit of Hippolytus that we didn't finish last time around. And um, especially his calendar is kind of interesting. And then um, uh, jump into uh, Cyprian of, of Carthage, uh, who's a very, very interesting uh, character. And there are two big controversies during the sixth generation. We'll deal with both of those tonight. And then uh, afterwards, I'm going to switch things around a little bit. Rather than go to Augustine, I'm going to uh, take a look at what everybody else was doing, not just the intellectuals, but uh, the, the hymns that uh, Christians were singing. We'll take a little look at that. Uh, we'll look at uh, uh, funer funerary art, um, what people were putting on their tombstones, and then the celebrating mass itself and what that looked like at the, uh, in the sixth generation. And then later, we'll take a look at, um, at calendars, why we have Easter when we do, why we have Christmas when we do, and, uh, and then, um, again, the Sunday liturgies, and then after that, we'll do Augustine, okay? So a couple more things about uh, Hippolytus. Uh, again, going back to the apostolic uh, exhortations, he, um, he describes specifically what taking communion looks like. And it's a little bit different from what we do nowadays. Uh, basically, a communion consists of bread and wine, but also a drink of water and another drink of milk and honey. And each of them have a, a particular meaning to them. The bread is the body of Christ. The wine is the blood of Christ. The, uh, the water is for purity. <coughs> and the, the milk and honey is for... Um, um, innocence as a child. child. Another thing too that he points out is that um, a, a daily communion, people were receiving communion every day um, in, in this early period, whether or not there was a mass involved. So what we're seeing there, if that's true, then what we're seeing is that, um, that, that the sacred species was being preserved in some kind of a tabernacle whether it's in some home or in some church or down in the catacomb someplace. Also, um, he gives the, the way in which bishops are elected and uh, consecrated. Also, the ritual for the ordination of priests and deacons, as well as the rule for widows, confessors, lectors, and subdeacons. He speaks also about the apostolic succession with the power to forgive sins, 
But of course, remember, that's very restricted and as, as he would look upon that. <clears throat> and then he decided also, he, he determined the date for Easter. And this is a statue that he commissioned of himself. And on one side of the statue is the formula for determining when Easter would be. And he got it right every year until 237. And then it just went haywire. And, uh, and, and so it actually took uh, to um, uh, 242 that a, uh, an author, um, an anonymous author, actually got the, the, the way of computing um, Easter uh, correctly. And he writes that up in a book called De Pasche, Pasche Computus. That statue was discovered in 1551. So a couple other things. Um, when he preached about ecclesiology, what is the church? Uh, Hippolytus says the church is, uh, the world is the sea, the church is the ark. The pilot is Christ, the angels and the saints are the sailors, the prophets and martyrs are the topsail uh, outlooks, or lookouts. And you see in his church there is, there is no room for sinner, as opposed to Callistus who saw the ark is being both clean and unclean. <clears throat> Callistus dies in 222. He's succeeded by uh, Urban uh, the first, who then dies. He is then succeeded by um, Pontianus. <clears throat> and it's at this time you have another um, um, Roman persecution breakout under the emperor Maximum Thrax. And in 235, he arrests both Pontianus and Hippolytus, and he sends them off to Sardinia to the salt mines. So here you have a pope and an anti-pope sharing the same salt mines. As a result, both of them will resign because they can't run the church from a captivity. And the churches then, both the churches in, uh, in Rome then reunite and they elect uh, Antrius as the Pope, who then dies. He's then replaced by Pope Fabian and he brings back the bodies of Pontianus and Hippolytus and they're buried together in Rome. This is the, the reliquary where their, uh, their remains are. So, uh, the big challenge here is a, um, a, a new emperor who absolutely hates Christians. In fact, he, uh, he martyrs the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Others flee, including the bishop of Carthage and Alexandria. And the bishop of Carthage is none other than Cicilius Ciprianus, St. Cyprian. But rather than be martyred, he fled into the, um, uh, the deserts of North Africa. Now the whole deal about this was this. That this, this persecution was to wipe out the leadership in the church, but then every, every Christian in the empire was required to go, not just every Christian, everyone in the empire was required to go down to the local county seat and to take a little bit of, um, of incense <laughs> 
and throw it into a fire as a way of adoring a Roman god. And if you didn't do that, you could find yourself persecuted, even executed. If you did it, you received a little certificate called the libellum. And with that certificate, if the police came up to you and said, do you have your certificate, and you pull it out, you know, there it is, they'll leave you alone. If you don't, they're going to send you right down to the county seat to, um, to uh, worship a, a false god and then get a certificate. Now what happens is this. Some Christians went ahead and, and they went and they apostatized. They went down and they thought, this, this doesn't hurt much. You know, I'll just cross my fingers and then I'll put a little in there and that'll be the end of that, you know. And, and so some of them did that. Some of them were a little bit more clever. And what they did was they would go down to the uh, office and uh, they would offer a certain amount of money for a uh, uh, libellum. So they were bribing the, the officers to give them a libellum. In some cases, some Christians forged their own. And they thought, well, no big deal. You know, if they're going to force me to do something immoral, I'll just do something immoral and make it moral. So there were those people who did that. Others were martyred. Hundreds and hundreds of people were executed as a result of refusing to um, make this little sacrifice. And there were some who eagerly turned themselves in. They literally went down to the county office and said, I'm not going to uh, worship that God. And of course the officials say, well, we're going to kill you. And they go, good, I'll get to heaven earlier. You know? So this is the way the church, and this was a, a, an empire-wide uh, persecution. So all over the empire, there was nowhere you could go. You could go hide, if you could, into forests or deserts or mountainous areas or whatever. <clears throat> but for, for two whole years, you were in, um, threatened with, with execution. Decius is, is quoted as saying this, I would rather know that there was a rival emperor in Rome than to know that Rome has a bishop. He hated the church so much and feared the episcopacy so much. And at one point, the church in Rome went an entire year without a, without a pope. Then Decius dies. The persecution comes to an end. But it had been, again, very violent and it had been all over the entire Roman world. And so the church, as the church takes a big breath and begins to recover and come back again, then you have some interesting things. In, in uh, 651, Cornelius I is elected. He writes to Antioch, to Alexandria, to Carthage, and tells those bishops, be merciful to those people who had lapsed. Those who had worshipped the gods, be merciful to them. Bring them back in. Interestingly enough, too, this letter was written to the entire church throughout the, the Roman world. 
And as such, it is probably the first encyclical. Now, in Rome itself, there's a priest. And this priest is, is upset with the pope. And he basically says that you can't do this. You can't forgive these people. They lapsed. They left the church. Don't let them back in. Now, his name is Novatian. And he gathers around a number of other Roman um, priests, deacons, laity who agree with him. And they call themselves the pure ones. And, and the word for that in Latin is cathari. They're, these are the pure ones. They did not apostatize. They risked their lives, but didn't have to give them up. But they risked their lives. And now they're looking at those people who had cheated and they don't want them to come back into the church. And so in Rome itself, you end up with a schismatic church. Uh, this is being led by um, the priest, or theologian rather, uh, theologian Novatian. Now over in Carthage, uh, some interesting things are happening. For one thing, Cyprian is one of those bishops who had fled. He comes back to Carthage and the reaction of the people when he gets back is, you fled, you coward. You know, we had people, we have relatives who died in this. We had saints, martyrs who died in this, and you ran away, you hid. And one of those who opposes him is a priest by the name of Novatus. Now that makes things very complicated for students of church history. Because down in Carthage, you've got Novatus, and up in Rome, you've got Novation. Okay. <laughs> so the priest Novatus opposes Cyprian, basically says, you can't be our bishop. You ran away. And Cyprian is, is, is standing by his guns. Cyprian agrees with Cornelius. Remember, he's, he receives a letter from Cornelius saying, Please be merciful to these people. Please be understanding. And, and, and Cyprian agrees with Cornelius. His conclusion is that all sins can be forgiven, even apostasy. A number of years ago, we had a, a seminarian here, um, and he had left the Catholic Church. He apostatized, he joined another church, and after a couple of years, he realized his error, and he came back to the Catholic Church, was received back, and then went to his bishop and said, I think I have a vocation to the priesthood. And the bishop studied this thing very carefully and said, okay, let's see. And he sent him here to Kenrick, and that, that priest is, is serving in his diocese today, doing a great job. So, you know, I... Certainly, Novatus and Novician were not right, but th that was the, st the stance that they took. Yeah? How do they justify their position given that Jesus forgave Peter for dying three times? Well, that's a great point. <laughs> and, and not only that, but Jesus also tells his disciples, when you're persecuted in one town, go to another. <laughs> forgive 70 times 7 and so forth? There you so go. I'm just, I'm just like, how do they, how do they justify it? Because it sounds like, you know, it's pretty, like, explicit that the apostasy can be forgiven. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, get into their heads at that particular time, and they, 
You know, they know people who have died, and they're upset. And sometimes when you're upset, you make mistakes. And theologically, they were making mistakes there. Yeah, yeah. I realized they weren't uh, really happy with people that apostatized between the ends of the century. They feel the same way about, you know, people that forced us to cancel. Yeah. Yeah, you cheated. You hid. You cheated. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> now that's a good point because Cornelius is also going to say, "Well, let's hang on for a second here." <coughs> so um, Novatus is saying this to Cyprian, to Car Cornelius: "Heaven help you, because the church can't. The church cannot forgive your sin. You know, no forgiveness for apostates." Now, on the other hand, Cyprian writes a little book, and it's, it's entitled De Lopsi, Concerning Those Who Had Lapsed. And he says this, he's, in this, it's a beautifully written little booklet, and he says, he starts off by saying he honors the martyrs. He honors those who gave their lives, who died rather than, than uh, apostatized. But he then goes on to say, we have to be, we have to be compassionate to the apostasies. And, and then he goes on and says, <clears throat> if they go to confession, then they should receive a penance that is, in, that's fitting the degree of apostasy. So if you have someone who willingly goes ahead and, and throws in the incense and turns around and says, can I have some more incense? You know, uh, that guy is going to have to do a lot of penance. If, on the other hand, you have somebody that throws in the incense and has his fingers crossed, okay, that's going to be a penance, but not, not as severe as the other one. If you have somebody that forges or, or bribes, another, once again, a lighter sentence, a lighter punishment, a uh, penance for that. <coughs> in reaction to that, Novatus then sets up his own schismatic church. So now you've got a schismatic church in, in Rome and another schismatic church in, uh, in Carthage. The two get together, Novatus and Novitian, and they set up another church for the whole empire. So now you've got the Catholic church and now you've got the Catholic church. And with this, then Cyprian writes yet another book <coughs> entitled Concerning the Unity in the Church, the Ecclesiae Unitate. And his position, is, 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 um, his position on this is this. First of all, every Catholic is in union in his church. Now, nowadays we would call that a diocese, okay? By being in union with his bishop. So the... Uh, going back again um, to Ignatius of, of Antioch, remember those, those first seven letters in the first in the second century, and he writes to those seven different communities, and he says the the church itself is unified by its bishop, and all those who gather around that bishop, that's the church. Okay? Nowadays we call it the diocese, but that's what he means there. And so the bishop then is the symbol of unity for the entire diocese, for the entire church. And then, in order to build this out to the universal church, he says every bishop is in union with other bishops by being in union with the bishop of Rome. 
This is a paragraph that's very important in, in, um, in uh, De Ecclesiae Unitate. He says this, Indeed, the others, he means here the apostles, the, the others that were also which Peter was, but primacy was given to Peter, whereby it was made clear that there is but one church and one chair. So too all the shepherds and the flock is shown to be one, fed by all the apostles in single-minded accord. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he will still that he still holds the faith? If he deserts the chair of Peter, upon whom the church is built, can he still be confident that he is in the church? So the, the Catholic Church's position is <clears throat> that every sin can be forgiven. Even sin of apostasy can be forgiven. Now, Jesus himself says that there is only one sin that cannot be forgiven. Remember what that is? The what? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I always get confused. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it doesn't mean, oh, the darn Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's, it's more than that. Basically, what it says is, <clears throat> I cannot receive the Holy Spirit to forgive my sins because my sins are unforgivable. So by refusing to ask for forgiveness, that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay. But everything else is. <clears throat> but now the second question comes up. You know, this... this shadow church that Novatus and Novatius has is, is, is set up, they're out there baptizing people. They're celebrating Mass. They're bringing communion. They're anointing the sick. And, and the question is, are, is this valid? Are these baptisms valid? And Cyprian's response is no. And his, his, his uh, quote is this, For who can he who lacks the Spirit confer the Spirit's gifts. In other words, what he's saying is that a schismatic cuts himself off from the church and thus cuts himself off from the Spirit. And he cannot confer the Spirit to another because he does not have the Spirit. Okay, that's Cyprian's argument. Okay. Now, the Pope at this time is Pope Stephen I. And he goes back and he says this. For validity, baptism needs only water and the Trinitarian formula. Therefore, schismatic baptisms are valid but not listed. Okay, so every, every sacrament has laws that you should follow. And if you don't follow those laws, then the sacrament becomes illicit. It, 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 does, it violates the law but it doesn't necessarily violate the validity of it because the, because the efficaciousness of the sacrament still remains to those who receive it. Uh, e easier example. Um, let's say that you go to Mass and, um, and the priest is, has committed a mortal sin. He's living in sin. And yet he convects the Eucharist and you receive communion from that priest, is that still a valid reception of communion? Yeah, right. 
and we can go back to St. Augustine and uh, he argued that. Now, if we had to rely upon the, the sanctity of priests to, um, <laughs> not that I'm saying anything about, well, I should not be saying this in that, <laughs> in that microphone. <laughs> but the reality is that we are all sinners. And, and so the, if, if, if validity uh, depended upon that, we'd all be in trouble. You know? So Cyprian comes back and argues that, that, uh, that St. Stephen is wrong. Again, go back to this. You'd have to use water, okay? You, you can't use apple juice. It has to be water. And you have to use the Trinitarian formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So if you use apple juice and you use the Trinitarian um, formula, it's not valid. If you use water and you say, I, like they did in the French Revolution, I baptize you in the name of liberty, fraternity, and equality, it's not valid. Okay, got it. Okay. So Cyprian turns around and says to the Pope, he says, you're wrong. The Pope's response? I'm right, and read this. <laughs> <laughs> So, Cyprian doesn't take that one lying down. That's a pretty good one, but he doesn't take that lying down. What he does is he turns around and he rewrites the <clears throat> Ecclesiae um, Unitate with that paragraph out. <clears throat> he says that the Pope is primus inter pares. He's the first among equals, but that's it. And for centuries, we've had both copies of, of De Ecclesiae Unitate, the long version and the short version. And for centuries, Catholic and, and Protestant uh, theologians have argued with each other over which one is actually the correct version, which is the first version. And the Protestant argument has always been that the papists added that missing paragraph. And it was only finally discovered by uh, Dom Chapman in England in the early 20th century that the longer version was in fact the original version. So now we know that it was. And Cyprian was simply playing games by eliminating that paragraph. And that's why on Holy Saturday, people who have gone through the RCIA program are received into the church, but not rebaptized. Any questions on uh, Cyprian of Carthage? So, he opposed the Pope like that, but he's a saint? Is he a saint? Yes, he is, yeah. yeah. So I guess he quit opposing the Pope? Well, opposing the Pope doesn't necessarily keep you from sainthood. I mean, look at Catherine of Siena. Uh, she went to Avignon, and she told the Pope, get back to Rome, and he eventually did. I mean, doctrinally speaking. Oh, doctrinally? Well, I don't know if that's he, a doctrinally. He, yeah. he, like, he wrote the book, and he took that part out of it. He, yeah, he, did, he, yeah. he opposed his definitive ruling on the matter. I think probably his, his uh, um, canonization comes with his martyrdom. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. That copy of the Ecclesia 
Yeah. That was circulated more. Yeah. Not really, because in the end, the church stands by uh, the Pope, Pope Stephen's uh, formula. Again, that's why we don't rebaptize. You know. Pardon me. No, no, they're baptized at the end on Holy Thursday. No, uh, Holy Saturday. Yeah. And to join the Catholic Church, I think it's just really important for people who have been cradle Catholic their whole life. Like, my church was, like, I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at night. And so when I was joining, I was like, I don't need to be baptized again. Yeah. I already was. And so, like, it made the process easier. Right. No, no. Yeah, so, like so you're a living example of this. Part. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good. Good. Thanks. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Give me a minute, <clears throat> and we're going to start looking at, we've been, like I said, we've been looking at all of these great intellectuals, and these, these authors, these, these church fathers. What's going on among the common Christians? How are they expressing their Christianity? And, and, and that really is something that we discover through archaeology. And especially in the late 19th century, there was an archaeologist who was just absolutely fantastic at what he was doing. His name is Giovanni Battista de Rossi. And he, he worked for a cardinal, then he ended up working for the Pope. He spent the rest of his life working for the Pope. And then at one point, uh, he retired and he had no place to go because he didn't have any money. And the Pope found out about it and brought him into the papal uh, apartments and he lived the rest of his life um, in the papal apartments. So really fascinating individual. Uh, Good character, but uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at uh, at him. Yeah. I have another question. Yeah. Is is Cyprian also the time when people were questioning, like the Donatists, the priests? That's a great question. The Donatists actually are a generation after um, these these guys, and they'll be confronted by Augustine. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Basically, the same thing. They're arguing the same thing, that, that purity thing. Yeah. Yes, he was. So there you go. <laughs> so uh, first of all, what what were the people singing at uh, at this time? And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, all the evidence shows that Catholics did sing. Now we don't sing at the 7 a.m. mass on Sunday, but other than that, we still do. Uh, first of all, reciting the Psalms that came right out of Jewish tradition, uh, the antiphonal recitation of Psalms that was sung in choir. So the church from the very beginning, uh, in, in fact, from the very beginning, the church continued um, attending the, uh, uh, the services in the, in, the, in the temple until they were finally kicked out of the temple and the synagogue. And, and so meeting on their own, they continued using the psalms then to sing with. Um, also, you have some other songs that are just embedded into scripture. The Magnificat is uh, embedded into uh, Luke, the first chapter. Also, the first chapter of Luke, also the Benedictus. Um, the uh, narrative, the, um, the infancy narrative of, of Jesus 
is the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Uh, when Simeon sees Jesus for the first time, there's that little poem called the Nunc Dimittis. Now you may dismiss your servant, O Lord. Um, the Santos, Santos, Santos comes from the book of Revelation. So we've got examples of, of songs that were being sung, and then also some of Paul's writings. Uh, there are examples of, um, of little um, statements, little, uh, little ditties that uh, would have been sung in the churches. I got a question. So when was Christianity legalized, and when did it become the state religion of the Roman Empire? Okay, it's legalized uh, under uh, Constantine. This is 313. It's the Edict of Milan. Mm -hmm. Okay, basically what he says is, I don't care what religion you belong to, you only have to do one thing, pray for me. And uh, one of you has to have the right God, so that's going to work out. Um, under Theodosius I, the first, um, a generation later, it was then made the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then shortly after that, uh, you had, um, you had um, Julian the Apostate, and he um, persecuted the church and set up his own Christian church. And, and of course, that lasted as long as he did. And that was out. What year was it legalized? What year did it become the state religion? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Because I got a Baptist friend who was telling me, well, what I think happened is that Christians were like, well, we believe, like a Baptist believe. And then, you know, paganism creeped into Catholicism, et cetera. But I'm noticing a lot of this stuff is before Christianity was legalized. Oh, yeah. Oh, Most yeah. This is. Yeah, no. So that's a nonsense argument, it seems like. Well, yeah, yeah. No, all you have to do is study early church history. You know, Newman himself said this. He said, you know, if I study church history, I could no longer be Protestant. <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking about the firm foundation here, you know. It's great. So here's one of the, uh, the songs that was sung. We have the words for it. We don't know how, uh, what, what the tune was. Uh, but this is, a, um, this is called the, the Fos Hilarion. And, <laughs> Hilarion. And it was discovered in... Uh, uh, Turkey, Asia Minor, sometime in the 19th century. It goes like this, serene light of the holy uh, glory of the Father everlasting, Jesus Christ having come to the setting of the sun and seeing the evening light, we praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of God. It behooves to praise thee at all times with holy songs, Son of God, who hast given life Therefore, the world glorifies thee. Early church um, song. Right? Tombs. Very interesting. Tomb was discovered in 1830 in uh, the province of Autun in France. <clears throat> it's called the Inscription of Pectorius. And Pectorius was the person who was buried in this... Um, in this tomb, and, uh, and, and this, this marker is there above that. And on one side, you have the ichthyos, and then this is all in Greek, this has been translated, but what you have there is each of the letters of the ichthyos begins the first line of the poem. So it says, Thou the divine child of the heavenly fish, Keep pure thy soul among the mortals. 
because thou receiveth the immortal fountain of divine water. Refresh thy soul, friend, with the ever-flowing water of wealth-giving wisdom. So that's on his tomb. And then on the other side of the tomb, there's another inscription, and it says this. May she rest peacefully, my mother. So I pray to thee, thou light of the dead. Ashantius, my father, my heart's beloved, with my sweet mother and my brothers, in the peace of the fish, remember thy pictorious. So what can we tell about, about this, about, about Pectorius himself? What kind of a family is he, did he come from? Well, he's got, he's got brothers, right? And they're dead. And his mother's dead also. By the time he died, his mother is dead, his brothers are dead. Not sure about his father. Either he's the youngest child or he was the mother of the martyrs. I don't know. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, the point is that people, Christians, were having tombstones put as they were being buried, whether as, as martyrs or otherwise, but they're having tombstones built at, and their faith is being expressed in stone. I think that's the, that's the key here. Their faith is being expressed in stone. In, in Rome, there's another um, a tomb that was found, uh, another uh, tombstone. And it said this. It said, To a woman of admirable goodness and incomparable sanctity and exemplary chastity, her life was marked by kindness, propriety, piety, and was in all things worthy of praise. She lived for 33 years, of which fifteen were with me, and never did she grieve me. She bore seven children, of whom four are with her near the Lord. So a, a couple things here. We, we see that the husband is still alive. right? He's the one who commissioned the, the stone. We see that she was 33 years old when she died, uh, had married him when she was 18, and that she had had seven children in those 15 years, and four of them are dead also. And there's one other thing I, that, that tells us something about that family. That guy has money. Think about it. You think about the typical tombstone and how many inscriptions are on it. He spent a lot of money having that thing carved. So the big question is, what do you, what do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> Here's some others. Uh, there's another fellow that was buried in Rome, and there are 20,000 of these inscriptions that have been discovered so far. 20,000 of them. And this is just a little sample. One fellow had on his stone that he was a uh, Montanarius. Uh, that means that he's a digger. But if he were just an ordinary, run-of-the-mill digger, he would have been a Fosaurus. Instead, he's a Montanarius. That means he's a professional digger. This guy digs well. 
Another fellow uh, was an Elephantarios. That is to say, he was a, a dealer in ivory. Another one that was a prefect to, I'm sorry, the secretary to the um, Prefectus Vigilum. Any idea what a Prefectus Vigilum is? Right. So who has to be vigilant in an urban area? Or what's the other? Fire. Yeah. So a Prefectus Vigilum is a fire chief. Yeah. Another was a secretary to the Prefectus Orbi. That's a city manager. He oversaw the city. Another one was a Vestitor Imperatoris. Imperatoris. Yeah, the emperor's dresser. So we see that, that these early Christians, and they, they, they put it right on their tombstone, right? Some of them are right in the imperial family. They're serving the imperial family. There's another one uh, we find that uh, uh, that was um, that died in 217, and on the front side of the tomb it says Marcus Aurelius Prosenes, freedman of two emperors, appointed by the divine Commodus to administer his barracks. Okay, now take that one apart too. So th this guy's name is Marcus Aurelius Prosenes. He had served under two emperors, and one of those emperors was Commodus, and he was the administrator of his barracks. And that's pretty important stuff. But he calls him divine. He's saying that the emperor is divine, okay? That's the front of the tomb. On the back side of the tombstone, it says, Porsenis was taken up to God on, and then we didn't see, we can't find the date on that, in the consulship of Presens and Ritius, Receptus in ad dominum, received by God. So here on the front side, where everybody sees, He's basically saying, I'm a good, loyal, pagan Roman serving the emperor. On the back side, he's <laughs> announcing that he's a Christian. <laughs> Some of the other uh, inscriptions, your soul rests in God, pray for your sister. Januaria, enjoy your happiness and pray for us. Attica, sleep in peace. Thy salvation is secure but be mindful of us and pray for our sins. Yeah? I'm, I'm just, uh, is it sufficiently clear that these sorts of inscriptions, some of them are pretty obviously Christian, and the Ichthus one that's a common Yeah, example. right, yeah. Um, but something like enjoy your happiness and pray for us, is that something that would never have been on pagan tombstone given their technology? No, it might have been. It could have been. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, The important thing behind this is that, that, that pray for us. Because the implication is there, even then, without necessarily having the theology of, 
of the uh, the three parts of the church. You know, the the church militant, those still living, the church suffering, those in purgatory, and the church triumphant. Each of these implies that that individual is now experiencing the church triumphant and that therefore their prayers are efficacious for us still living. In the catacombs of Callistos, we have a, uh, uh, a drawing of a woman. This is not that woman, by the way. I couldn't find the drawing. Uh, but it's a woman who is standing with two tables on either side. And there's fruit on one side and vegetables on the other. And she, she's a, a green grocer. See? And then a basket is beneath her feet. And then above, there are birds flying around. And so basically, this is that woman's understanding of what happiness in the afterlife is going to be like. Basically doing what she's doing right now. So I, I found a couple of good uh, tombstones here. <laughs> I told you I was sick. And you can, can you read the line below there? Having a great time. Wish you were here. <laughs> I don't know if that's a real one or not, to tell you the truth. And then the other one, here lies Pizza Boy, rest in pizza. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, some things about uh, Holy Mass. <clears throat> this is sort of redundant. I mean, we've talked about some of this stuff before. But first of all, remember that Ignatius of Antioch, in that, you know, we're not even a generation after the apostles. This is a sub-apostolic period. And we already have an expression of the real presence of the Eucharist. Justin Martyr, in his Apologia, particularly his first Apologia to the Senate, <clears throat> in which he says, we're not cannibals. And then he describes the Mass. Not in great detail. That comes with Hippolytus. Hippolytus describes the Mass in great details. Talks about the rubrics, about the formula. The words that are used, don't stray from the words. You know, say the black, do the red. That's Hippolytus. And then you've got another, um, even earlier, there is a, um, uh, a document that was discovered in Syria. It dates back to around 200 A.D. And it's the Didascalia Apostolorum. And again, this goes into great detail about how people are, um, how, how you ordain people, how you baptize people, uh, the different roles that people play. Then also, <clears throat> again in Syria, there is a church that was discovered, again from the sub-apostolic period. It's known as the Dura Europas. Not many people go to it, especially nowadays. Syria is not a nice place to be. And it shows us basically the cruciform design of a church that we would have today. 